Hey everyone, Wado here with two quick announcements. Through the end of the year, we're offering 15% off the annual membership at patreon.com slash curbsiders, where you can sign up to receive twice monthly bonus episodes. Join us on our Discord for behind the scenes access to me, Paul, and the rest of the team, where you can hang out as colleagues. A lot of people leaving Twitter and X will come over, hang out with us on our Discord. And number two, starting January 1st, 2024, VCU Health is going to have to start charging a small fee for CME credit claimed through their site. We will continue to offer CME through VCU, but we understand why they have to make this change. And we thank them for all the years of free CME credit for our listeners. So, Paul, I was I was looking for a good Christmas pun. And uh, because I'm such a cool guy, I'm wearing a Santa sweater, just like Beyonce, Paul, I slay, I slay. (laughs) <laughs> Nora, so, does that make sense? Is that does she have I a song? It. I got yeah. it. I'm hip. Yeah. <laughs> so right. for the listeners, by the way, Matt took about ten minutes to look that up, and that was the one he landed <laughs> on. So. <laughs> <laughs> the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with America's primary care physician, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing? I feel infested, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well, Paul. This this episode is going to come out on Christmas Day, so it's the holiday season. That's why we're all wearing, except for uh-huh. you, Paul, we're all wearing holiday colors of some sort. And uh, Paul, uh, we have some great co-hosts with us. This is the recap extravaganza, which we have done for many, many years now. And uh, Paul, can you tell people what is it that we do on the Curbsiders and what will we be doing on this show? Sure. So as a reminder to our listeners, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. The format of our end of the year summary is a little bit different where we are the experts um, and we don't have anyone additional. We, we do have some some special guests with us, but they are part of the Curbsiders team. So which is not to say they're they're not experts, but this is a long winded way of saying that we'll be going over sort of the, the pearls and the highlights from the past year that we found especially meaningful or especially practice changing or, or that made us think the most. So we'll we're going to round robin style, kind of go through our picks of the year, if you will, for some of our favorite episodes and kind of recap and summarize for our listeners. And we should mention that these are, I mean, we had so many episodes come out that we couldn't even pick one pearl from each episode. So what we did, there's four of us. We have with us the great Dr. Nora Toronto of the Digest. Nora, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? We are very excited to have you on the show to share some of your favorite pearls from this past year, from digest and from the curbsiders episodes and of course with us dr rahul ganatra of our hotcake series rahul how are you i'm grand just grand i i love the christmas hat it is it it looks it looks great thank you i you know you you say we're holiday garb and i take that seriously man unlike some of us (laughs) parenthetically if you want to (laughs) you could have used a turtleneck you could have used a turtleneck but otherwise you, you look great uh should we do some picks of the year paul you know since it's the last chance of the year for us to give our our favorite our top picks and paul i don't think anyone wants to follow you so would you care to start (laughs) <laughs> so everyone can follow me. Sure. I like that system. Um, yeah, it's so I'm going to this is like a Russian doll of a, of a pick of the week. So 
I, I may mention this album before. My, my pick of the year is actually going to be the album Murder the Mountains by Red Fang. They're the, the stoner metal group. This album came out in 2011. I mentioned this because I felt kind of dumb saying that music is my pick of the year. It just feels like too broad a topic. But I, I will say that music has always been super important to me. It's always been something that's been restorative. And then I think over the past couple of years, like I'll just put my iPhone on shuffle and just kind of listen passively and have not been engaging with it actively. Like it's just been a thing that's been kind of in the background. And then with COVID, I couldn't do live shows. And I, with things starting to reopen up, I actually went to a couple of live shows this year. One was I saw Charlie Bliss in Philadelphia and, and almost cried there and felt like a fool. And then I saw Red Fang in a cornfield, basically, in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, there at this dive bar that was in Lancaster, of all places. And they were awesome. They ruled. It was an incredible show. And then the other thing is I got into vinyl, so I've been just infuriating and awful about that. I, I think that the, this whole experience and, and sort of having this kind of intentionality about something I love just sort of taught me to not take things for granted um, in a way and not be sort of, a, not to passively enjoy the things that bring you passion, but to be really deliberate and intentional about them. And so that, you know, having vinyl and, and being able to go back to live shows has been a way to do that. And I've been really grateful for it. So take that pick of the year, however you want to take it. But the, the short version would be the album <laughs> Murder the Mountains by Red Fang. All right. Great pick. Nora, you're up next. Yeah, so I feel like going on a theme here, my general pick of the year is good fiction, which I found a decent number of books t that I really enjoyed this year. Um, the Great Belie Believers is one of them by Rebecca Mackay, and then Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is another by uh, Gabrielle Zevin, both just really like enthralling. And then my my highlight pick of the year is, of course, my brother's novel, which came out this year. He's a debut novelist. Uh, it's Love called it. How I Won a Nobel Prize. And uh, it was described as very funny, very good by B.J. Novak. Uh very exciting. Amazing. Uh, and yeah, you know, and I have to say, I agree with that assessment <laughs> of it. Um, it's about cancel culture and doing science for uh, science's sake and for kind of bigger, uh, bigger reasons while ignoring, uh, ignoring uh, cultural and, uh, and value based uh, problems that are occurring kind of in order to do that. Um, it's, great i really enjoyed it i'm obviously biased big conflict of interest here but uh but it's it's really wonderful that's awesome that your brother wrote a book that yeah did it, did it take several years to write the book like i hear it's like it's not fun to write a book so it's yeah. like you, you only write one if you have to get it out of you <laughs> yeah he he's actually since college he's been kind of writing part-time and mm. he's He's a lawyer by training, and so he worked as a boo. lawyer for. I know, I know, <laughs> boo, boo, boo. Um, but uh, he he was able to go part time, kind of a few years ago, and got more time to write. And then uh, he's actually given up the law for now uh, to do full time full time writing. So yeah, it seems like he really does feel compelled to do it in some ways. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Sounds like he fought the law and he won. Mm-hmm. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Ooh. <laughs> Rahul, how about you? Okay, so, um, you know, there's a lot to kind of be anxious about in the world and a lot to worry about. So my pick of the year uh, was something that really helped me remember the natural beauty of the world. 
And, you know, I'm really lucky I can get outside, I can see beautiful things. Um, but I had sort of forgotten uh, how much joy uh, you can get from just really well done nature documentaries. And especially as my kids are getting kind of old enough to be interested, we're trying to figure out what nature documentaries we can watch with them. And this year, uh, I discovered something uh, that was produced a couple years ago now in 2021 called Secrets of the Whales. And this is a National Geographic documentary that uh, actually only has four episodes, so it's not a big commitment, but it is truly mind-blowing and a such a welcome reminder of like the mystery and the beauty that exists, uh, you know, in the world kind of outside of our little spheres. Um, it just to, to give you an example, it turns out whales have what you could call culture in the sense that they have to pass down, you know, traditions and behaviors related to hunting and social rituals. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. And the drone footage is like incredibly beautiful. It sounds amazing. Okay. So I'll, I'll give a quick pick of the week before we get on to our, our pearls. Uh, my pick is, is watching soccer, my, or just soccer in general. My kids have been obsessed with soccer since the world cup in 2022 and it was a warm winter, so we played soccer all winter, all spring, and you know, kind of led led us into the summer season. And it's been a lot of fun. So we have all the apps: Peacock, Paramount Plus, ESPN Plus, and basically follow all the different uh, European soccer leagues, and not not as much of the MLS for whatever reason. And then there's all sorts of daily or weekly soccer podcasts as well. So. Uh, if anyone wants to on the Discord wants to uh, talk soccer with me, I am I am down. Okay, we're gonna kind of go round robin here for the audience. We're gonna, you know, spend a couple minutes talking about some favorite episodes or favorite stories from the past year, and we'll just kind of take turns. So, Nora, you're up first. What what would you like to talk about? So, I thought I'd kick us off with a few pearls from episode 409, which was one of my favorites from the year. Uh, this was an episode on hormonal and non-hormonal therapy for the vasomotor symptoms of menopause. Uh, and we had an expert, Dr. Monica Christmas, uh, on the show. I, I, I found it honestly, like, hugely useful um, for my own practice. And then also just, I think, in primary care generally, um, there were a ton of pearls here about pharmacologic non-pharmacologic pearls. And uh, one, one of the kind of interesting pieces that I guess makes sense, but, uh, but that she, she spent more time on than I would have expected was the focus on uh, kind of behavioral modification, uh, which I think is so hugely important in and, and kind of expectation setting with yourself in terms of when you get a hot flash, like how you can modulate your own experience of that. And so kind of referred several times to the utility of cognitive behavioral therapy um, and and kind of self-taught management style. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and, uh, and then an, a, a bunch of facts throughout this episode, including the fact that uh, these hot flashes in particular and vasomotor symptoms can occur for five to 10 years, even longer. She she referred at one point to the long flasher phenomenon, which I thought was really <laughs> a, a very funny way to describe uh, this, but a useful one to, to make us remember that this is happening for longer than just a few years, right around 50. 
Nora, yeah. I think she said her mom was a yeah, chronic flasher, which yeah. taken out of context mom. could be really, you know. I know. Um, <laughs> but it was perfect. I loved it. Um, and then she got into both uh, the, the non-hormonal therapies of which we talked about venlafaxine, that that would seem to be her preferred SNRI, SSRI of choice uh, in terms of uh, management of vasomotor symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, talked briefly about gabapentin and fezolinotant, um, which I didn't know, actually, but she said could cause headaches as one of its kind of primary side effects, not necessarily significantly more than than uh, the placebo in the trials. But she said anecdotally, she's actually seen a lot of headaches with patients on that. Yeah, Paul and I, uh, we, we talked about this recently for one of our Patreon episodes where we were recapping this menopause episode. And we, we haven't really seen many patients on it yet. I, I do think because the direct-to-consumer ads are out there now, I think people are going to be asking about it. I mean, it was more effective in placebo than trials, but this is a condition where placebo has a really strong effect. So mm-hmm. most things you try, you're going to get some sort of effect. And uh, it's all about, you know, just kind of, risk benefit, patient preference. And so I, I really, this is a condition where I just really work with people, give them some options and, and see what they want. And you can, you can try a bunch of different things. Right. And that includes that even the duration of the hormone therapy too. I thought that was one of the most compelling points where it's like, yes, theoretically 10 years after menopause, you should have a conversation about discontinuation, but there are some patients that really feel that it meaningfully changes their life. And if you're doing informed decision uh, making and you're doing shared decision making, that kind of stuff, then, you know, Dr. Christmas will talk about even continuing that as long as you're documenting assiduously and the patients understand the risk that they're possibly taking. So it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a dead, a, a hard stop um, after a certain mm-hmm. period of time. And a shout out uh, to the show notes for this, because Dr. Christmas gave us uh, a bunch of tables that list pretty much all the different hormone therapies that are available, the different formulations. And she just basically said she usually starts with like a medium dose of estrogen. So you can look at the dose, you can look at the agents and the dose range and Ultimately, you're just prescribing what's on a patient's formulary for this. Nora, before we move on, any any last things you wanted to say about uh, hormone therapy? No, I, I mean, the only only other thing that I thought was particularly interesting that I really didn't know before was um, her. She mentioned just very quickly at the end that uh, for a number of the uh, the hormone gels and creams that you should actually be aware of the fact that they like take time to dry and you can actually transfer yeah. uh, like estrogen to kids, to pets, uh, if you don't actually wait for that. So that, that was kind of an interesting little tidbit that I really, I don't think I would have thought to advise patients about mm-hmm. otherwise. Yeah. It can happen with testosterone gel as, mm-hmm. as yeah. well. All right, Rahul, you're up next, and I believe you were going to talk about number 380, hemochromatosis, with your friend, Dr. Elliot Tapper. Yes, um, this was one of my favorite episodes uh, that we put out in the past year. Um, there there are pearls of knowledge uh, just deposited throughout this episode, not unlike iron in hemochromatosis. Um, Rahul, you're on fire tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saving these up all year. Um <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Glass Health. Hi, everyone. We are thrilled that this episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by Glass Health. Glass Health was founded in 2021 and has the mission of empowering doctors with AI-powered clinical decision support. Glass helps clinicians to draft differential diagnoses and draft clinical plans using physician-validated context. 
You can also use Glass to capture knowledge of all of the schema, scripts, cases, and pearls that you encounter and leverage them to take better care of patients. Try Glass for yourself by visiting Glass Health. Personal knowledge management features are free, and with Glass Pro, you get access to their powerful AI. You can get one month of Glass Pro for signing up at glass.health and using the code CURBSIDERS. Again, that is glass.health, code CURBSIDERS. Glass, like any clinical reference text or podcast, should never replace clinician judgment. So I learned a lot from this episode and and in filled in a lot of knowledge gaps that it turns out that I had about hemochromatosis. And one of the biggest knowledge gaps that this episode filled for me is that an elevated transferrin saturation, although that is sort of part of the pathophysiology of hemochromatosis, you shouldn't reflexively think, okay, that indicates that a patient, you know, has hemochromatosis, uh, or, or even in patients who are homozygous for the gene mutation, that that is necessarily reflective of iron overload from hemochromatosis. So Elliot really put uh, together a very nuanced approach to this, and I'll, I'll just share some of the pearls um, that stuck with me from that episode. So it turns out that alcohol um, also leads to alterations in iron metabolism, leads to uh, increases in hepcidin, uh, increases in ferritin, and an increase in transferrin saturation. And so patients who, even in patients who are homozygous for the hemochromatosis gene mutations, um, alcohol can play a big role in kind of um, uh, affecting their uh, indices of iron and iron deposition. And Elliot talked about a great uh, teachable moment case in JAMA IM uh, from 2017 that we can link in the show notes. Uh, which really illustrates the pitfalls of uh, anchoring on hemochromatosis as the cause for an elevated TSAT uh, in patients who also consume alcohol. So I thought that was really great. I I've used TSAT myself as sort of a screening test for hemochromatosis, mm -hmm. probably inappropriately uh, in patients who are you know sick uh, in the hospital with inflammation and other problems. Um, so that was a really important thing. Yeah. And he talked about this concept of, for us in primary care, this dysmetabolic iron overload, which is basically the patient with metabolic syndrome, like their ferritin levels can be elevated too. And it's, it doesn't mean that they have hereditary hemochromatosis. So he actually said he creates maybe a little more extra work for himself where if someone sees him and they have elevated ferritin and TSAT, he'll be, he'll say, okay, let's stop alcohol let's get you metabolically healthy. And then we'll, we'll kind of repeat labs in three to six months and see if it gets better. Cause if it does, you know, he's less suspicious of hemochromatosis. And, um, yeah, I mean the, the pathophysiology of it, of, of how, why hemochromatosis is, you know, why, why it happens is a little bit confusing to me, but I do think that just, just remembering that even if someone has like both genes that the penetrance is not a hundred percent. So that's why you don't want to overtest people because they're going to only hear that they have this at these two abnormal genes. They're not going to really understand that, that, that what penetrance incomplete penetrance is. So Paul, any comments as America's primary care? No, I, I this is, this is a, I, uh, this was one I was going to pick if somebody else didn't uh, Rahul, just because this is one of the show notes that I refer to all the time because it's you know it's so common to come back with an elevated ferritin and you're like well shoot what do I do with that and how worried should I be and what other things should I be looking at and so I you know I especially with hospitalized patients I think that the, the patients are already inflamed or if they're coming with an acute liver injury and you set off the usual sort of battery of tests and they come back wonky and you're like well I don't know what to do with any of this um, so like I I think Elliot's parsimony as usual is is really much appreciated and I thought this was a particularly great episode. 
So for the listeners, the cutoffs you can look for for transfer and saturation are greater than 45 to 50%, and for ferritin are greater than 200 to 300. And uh, with women being on the lower end end of those ranges and men being on the higher end. And he he made the point that women, uh, probably because they're having blood loss throughout life, uh, they might they might manifest symptoms later or just might seem to have less penetrance even if they have the genes. Um, so I thought I thought that was interesting as well. Any other comments before we move on from this one? Elliot did say one thing in his typical pithy fashion during the episode that really stuck with me, uh, talking about patients who report feeling better after phlebotomy, even if their ferritin and transferrin saturation are not that high. Um, he said, I've learned the hard way never to take a placebo effect away from a patient. Yeah. I yep. thought that was really wise. That's right. Okay. So let's let's move on to uh, Paul. And Paul, what what did you want to talk about next? Sure, I'll get lead with um, our episode 404, which was hematuria with Dr. Derek Fine. I'm a longtime fan of the shows may know that I have been threatening to do a hematuria episode for like six years before this one started to even come together. And it's it's hard for me to separate out. This was a live episode. So we actually we were we were at Hopkins um, in front of an audience, which is always fun. And they always do this very well. So it's this episode will always be um, will hold its place in my heart, but it was also like full of clinical pearls. I thought Dr. Fine really helped clarify and kind of reinforcing things about hematuria in general. And I, I think probably, I, I feel like I see in residency clinic and maybe just in life that hematuria is probably underestimated and people don't do a great job of risk stratifying someone who is at high risk for malignancy versus low risk for malignancy. Um, especially, and, we'll, and I'll talk about this in a second, like if they're on anticoagulation, we almost kind of just be like, well, that we have a reason for them to be bleeding then. But uh, it was just nice to have sort of concrete things. So age, more than 30 pack years of smoking, if you have gross hematuria, all these things are almost immediately shift you into the high risk category, and you should be more concerned and probably do a more facilitated workup. So I, I have now moved to CT urogram, um, personally in the office, just even in advance of getting to urology, just because I have a feeling that's that's where they're headed. So I'm just doing, a, I think, a better job of facilitating follow up for hematuria that raises concerns for malignancy. So, and I had mentioned the anticoagulation thing, this has come up in, in a couple of times recently for me where um, it was almost the, the hematuria was attributed to the patient's anticoagulation. They were on a DOAC for whatever reason. And I just, I'm going to make the point for the bazillionth time that DOACs don't make you bleed. They just keep you from stopping bleeding. So you still have to have a reason to have hematuria. You still have to work up the etiology. And in fact, there have been a couple of neat papers that have looked at patients with gross hematuria are more likely to have their cancer declare itself earlier because of that hematuria and they end up with better outcomes. So they are diagnosed at earlier stages. They they just have better uh, morbidity and mortality associated with it. So the, in a weird way, the hematuria is kind of protective for people who are declaring themselves um, to have a malignancy. So don't don't blow off blood in the urine just because a patient's on a blood thinner because that's you still have to work it up and it, it still may be something bad. Yeah, and Paul, you made a really nice figure to go along with this one to uh, summarize a lot of the pearls of the episode. To recap, so the more red cells you have in your urine, the higher the risk. If you have gross hematuria, that's high risk. And the older your age, the higher risk, obviously, history of smoking. And for lower risk patients, we talked a little bit about, like, you can get a renal ultrasound. It, it says that in the guidelines. But usually, for me, if it's a high risk person, I'm usually getting a CT urogram and then sending to urology for the cystoscopy. That's kind of my my move. Um, I'm not sure. Uh Nora, as a an oncologist in training, do you have any uh, any differing any differing views on this? No, I mean I think that that's the basic workup that that they would do if it wasn't already done. So I think that's kind of the most helpful mm -hmm. 
helpful thing tools to to know to employ and i i think it's a really interesting point the 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 reminder that anticoagulation mm-hmm. uh does not beget bleeding uh from the from the bladder and there's it you should investigate causes um if if you're seeing it is the thought of the ultrasound just to diagnose a stone if if that's the cause yeah it's it's like is there hydronephrosis is sure, there okay. are there mm-hmm. stones you know just it, it, that's that's my thinking too. It's like you. It feels like you could miss a lot with just an ultrasound, and that's yeah. why I think they do it because not everyone has the resources to get a CT urogram. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and you can catch like cysts, and you can see like renal cell carcinomas oh, okay. with sure. with ultrasounds. I think that's sort of the also part of it. And yeah, and you can look, but you're, you're missing stones with renal ultrasound. So like I, I'm mm-hmm. kind of with you, Matt, in terms of my practice, and it just doesn't. Mm-hmm. make a whole lot of sense to me if the renal you know, ultrasound would come back negative they're getting a ct or if it comes back positive they're getting a ct anyway so it just seems to me that probably you may as well just skip the step and go right to the yeah. ct urogram yeah i don't know whether it's just challenging kind of from a national perspective to get high quality <laughs> ct urograms that are timed appropriately i don't know whether that's a piece of it mm-hmm. I, I i could imagine maybe that's that's some of it yeah I'm I'm sure it's the cost. People are worried about giving dye, and it's yeah. just a bigger, more re, a bigger yeah. resource. It's radiation, you know, all those kind of things too. So, yeah, and and we did most most bleeding is urologic, as Doctor Fine said, but he did also give us his sort of how he thinks about uh, glomerular bleeding too, and that that's in that figure as well that Paul Paul made. Yeah, that's something I'm going to have to look up always, but I will mm-hmm. say that if you see. Uh, the creatinine is going up or the patient comes in something hypertensive, like those things should raise immediate alarms for a nephrologic source uh, as opposed to something, you know, a, a, a urologic source. So it's just don't forget that there are certain glomerular causes of of actual grossy material, though, if you see clots, that does almost certainly like it's it's almost certainly to be like malignancy somewhere in the urinary tract, not something within mm-hmm. the kidney itself. All right. So the next next we're going to talk about we did two diabetes episodes this year because it seems both. Uh, Paul and I and the audience can't get enough of diabetes episodes. So the first was number 387 with Dr. Marie McDonald, who uh, just just a fantastic guest. Some of the things she said that uh, that really stuck with me, she said, you know, insulin is is not the right medication for most patients with type 2 diabetes. And and I do believe that's true. Um, I think we know that now more so than probably in the past. Uh, we have so many more tools now that we can use before we get to insulin. And, uh, she did say the one time that she really, you can really convincingly say it is if like the patient has weight loss and they really have a lot of the poly symptoms, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, you know, that probably, probably that's the type of person, especially if they have like double digit, uh, A1C that you can, you could potentially start on insulin, but the GLP-1 agonists and now the GIP slash GLP-1 agonists, that would be terzepatide. Those ones are as potent as insulin almost. Uh, I mean, the, you're talking A1C lowering of 2%. So uh, they they work really well for people. And um, I, you know, I am prescribing a lot of them now in addition to my base of like lifestyle changes and metformin. Paul, what are you, any anything to add to this here? No. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's the, we've talked about this a bazillion times, which is why I don't have a lot to add. The paradigm shifted where... The goal is now to get patients off of insulin if possible, as opposed to just getting them onto it, trying to talk them into it and keeping them on it for the rest of their lives. We just have so many good, powerful medications with better outcomes that are um, that are as effective in, in lowering uh, blood sugar. So, yeah, I, this is me agreeing with everything you said. 
So let me ask you this then, Paul, that she, she mentioned it's very expensive for both insulin and the newer medications. So is it ever acceptable to use like a sulfonylurea or like a DPP-4 inhibitor? Um, she said sometimes she'll do that as like sort of a temporizing measure, just knowing it's not really offering a lot of other benefits. I'm not sure if that's something that you incorporate in your practice or if you have another workaround. I mean, that's, yeah, that's something I've, I've done. Like I'm not about, you know, if you have patients who are very needle averse or perhaps you have an extremely old patient whose A1C is just not quite where you want it. Like, you know, it's their, their blood sugars are sort of consistently a touch higher than we'd like. So maybe you just feel like they need a little bit of help, but you don't want to burden them with the, with daily insulin injections, then maybe I'll sort of talk myself into it. But even still, I know you have to be careful with the sulfonylureas in your older patients. So, but I, I'm not above using them for patients who, um, are not in love with the other options. If mm -hmm. you, if you still need a little bit of glycemic control. Okay. And then the, ne the next episode was number 397. Uh, this was uh, an insulin-focused episode with Dr. Jeff Colburn. And he taught us a lot about the different types of insulin. Um, some of the pearls that stuck out for me were that NPH insulin can be used as monotherapy, like instead of a basal insulin. And he usually doses it two-thirds in the morning and one-third in the evening. And Paul, I'm not sure if you see this too, Rahul, Nora, but a lot of patients I see just skip skip that step where they're on metformin and NPH as the basal insulin, and they go right to 70-30 insulin, which is a basically a basal bolus regimen. Um, that, that's commonly what I see. Rahul, mm -hmm. probably in the hospital, you might see patients being discharged with that. Yeah. It, I want to say that that was on the VA formulary for, if not, it still mm -hmm. is. So we, I, I would occasionally see patients on that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what Dr. Colburn was basically saying is, you know, for, for a lot of patients with type 2, if they do need an insulin, usually you start them first on just a plain basal insulin. So NPH can be given by itself. And some of the big box stores, uh, you, can, you can get it for a good price there. And then the other big thing was debt insulin detimer, Paul, twice daily. Is that what you commonly see? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't had not been commonly seeing it. This one was practice changing. I think, especially at the lower doses, and having talked to my clinical pharmacist, it is something that I, I that is now the adjustment that I'm making. And I even had patients figure that out for themselves before I even had the chance mm -hmm. to sort of make the change. They'll come and be like, "Yeah, it's, it wasn't working for me, so I just split up the dose and do it twice a day now, and it seemed to be much more consistent." I was like, "Well, congratulations, you, you yeah. figured out the science before I did." So, like, it's so yeah, right. that's a big point that was certainly practice changing for me. Yeah, if you if you look in the pharmacokinetics section of Lexicomp, it basically says the lower the dose, the the shorter the half-life and the less, the more variable it is. So on those people, especially on the lower doses, make sure you're splitting it up. And then this, the last thing I'll say on insulin is um, over-basalization. Um, we'll look out for that. So if they're on more than half a unit per kilogram body weight, so if someone weighs 100 kilograms, if they're on more than 50 units of a basal insulin, Glargine, Detimer, NPH, uh, probably they need to be on prandial insulin as well. And so you, you could you could go ahead and switch them over and make sure you prescribe everybody something for uh, hypoglycemia and tell them the 15 grams of carbs every 15 minutes and recheck their sugar until, they're, until it's up. Um, all right. So Nora, moving on to uh, your next topic, what, what do you have for us? I have episode 392, which was another live episode that you guys filmed in, I think, March. Uh, and this one covered opioid and xylazine withdrawal in the hospital. This was with Dr. Joseph DeRazio um, and uh, was 
similarly filled with lots of pearls about a topic that I had kind of heard of very briefly prior to this, but but really hadn't seen much of um, on uh, the new new and developing field of uh, xylenzine overdose and withdrawal, which we're seeing uh, in particular on the East Coast uh, and uh, seems to be spreading, spreading West somewhat uh, slowly. So xylazine uh, is also known as trank or tranquilizer. It's an animal sedative. It's uh, similar to clonidine. It's an alpha-2 agonist. And uh, we notably have been seeing it mixed into, in particular, the fentanyl supply over the last few years. Um, there's no reversal agent for it uh, in particular. Um, and it so it produces uh, Narcan-resistant opioid overdoses. And so in patients who you know have ingested opioids, um, uh, you may see that they're, they're not responding to Narcan as you would, you would expect. And so that's, that's, the main way that Dr. Durazio said that we have been seeing these uh, clinically suspicious cases of xylazine overdose. Uh, and Narcan being the trade name for naloxone, right? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the patients have often been coming into the hospital or are being treated out in the field. Lots of this in Philadelphia in particular uh, and on the East Coast, uh, broadly speaking. And Xylazine can be uh, used via various modalities. So it can be injected, smoked, insufflated, um, and we don't have a good rapid test for it in the hospital yet. Um, sounds like there's some work to try to uh, develop a urine drug screen for this as well. But I'm, I don't know of any, any systems that are using that yet. Um, I don't know if, Paul, you have any any. Now, I think there might be some regulatory barriers. I think there's some things in the work, but I'm not sure that they're actually approved for sort of use in formal system settings yet. Yeah. So, Rahul, I'm not sure if you're seeing a lot of opioid withdrawal in your practice as a hospitalist. And tell me if this speaks to you. What Supposedly, one of the ways to identify this is if you treat someone for opioid withdrawal and kind of give them adequate amount of opioids so they shouldn't be in withdrawal anymore, but they're still really anxious. That's one of the ways our guests told us to sort of recognize that this might be on board as well. So I'm not sure if this is a problem up there. Yeah, I, you're right. I'm really not mainly because of, you know, my patient population is, you know, sort of older. Um, so it's, it has, I have not seen so much of this. Also, our uh, inpatient um, mental health and substance use treatment facilities actually in a different hospital. Mm. So we only end up seeing the people who have medical uh, contraindications to going directly there. So I have not seen a lot of that. So yet. you're not seeing it. And Paul, one thing I wanted to ask you, because when we were on this episode, I think this is st was still sort of in flux and we weren't sure, Does do the wounds appear only in the area they're injecting or can they appear like, you know, at distance sites? Because I, I feel like we've heard both things. Do we know this yet? <laughs> we've heard both things. I don't know that it's been actually confirmed yet or not. Yeah. Okay. So to be determined. But if, if you have the patient uh, with opioid use disorder and necrotic skin wounds, you know, that that is sometimes a clue that uh, there's xylazine in their in their supply. So a couple of plugs while we're on it. So you mentioned Joe DeRazio. He actually just wrote a great narrative review on xylazine that's in the annals, this, like it came out this week. Um, so it, I, we can link that in the show notes. And there's also um, an article that just came out. Sorry, I'm fighting with my cat at the same time about wound care for xylazine-associated wounds, lessons learned from a low-barrier wound clinic in Philadelphia. 
So a couple of colleagues also put that out. Actually, I think again this week, this week has been an incredible week for addiction medicine articles. Like there's been a lot of things published by like personal friends and people that we know from Twitter and stuff. But yeah, Joe's review on xylazine is, is certainly worth reviewing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. It sounds like these wounds are significant, but they actually heal pretty well on the spectrum of wound healing. Yeah, I was surprised. I was really surprised when he said that. Yeah, so it sounds like if you can get, if you can stop with injection, it, assuming that that's kind of the main trigger of uh, of this, that they actually heal pretty well and pretty mm-hmm. quickly. And actually, Matt, the article about the wound care that I was referencing, they, they mention, um, at least according to these authors, that they see it in sites remote from injection, and in fact, even in patients who smoke, um, who who get it through through inhalation. So it, it mm. seems like it is not necessarily a direct injury. Yeah, very very strange. Yeah. Okay. Nora, any any other uh, addiction medicine pearls before we move on to Rahul? I mean, just generally to to give a shout out to the addiction medicine series and the update in addiction medicine uh, that that we've had uh, the chance to cover kind of throughout the years. Um, I think I think there are a ton of pearls throughout those episodes and and. The, the topics are all evolving kind of by the week, as Paul was saying. All right. Rahul, what's next? All right. So uh, my next uh, pick is episode number 386. Uh, this was a Neff Madness pod crawl uh, with uh, Dr. Matthew Luther. And this uh, episode was all about um, primary aldosteronism or primary hyperaldosteronism. And most of my day in the hospital is spent, you know, talking to patients and residents about why we do not need to worry about their elevated blood pressure right now uh, and trying to avoid escalation of treatment for hypertension uh, when possible. So this, this episode similarly filled in a lot of knowledge gaps for me about management of hypertension uh, in the office setting. And probably the single biggest uh, pearl that I learned from this episode was that primary aldosteronism is thought to be the most common cause of resistant hypertension. And I think we've all had patients with persistently difficult to control hypertension. Um, Dr. Luther estimated that as many as 15 to 20% of patients who are referred to specialty hypertension clinics will end up being diagnosed with uh, primary aldosteronism. So it's worth evaluating patients for this. Um, We... Talked about, used a case to talk through kind of the recommended testing and stuff. Um, the thing, the pearl from this is that the recommended initial diagnostic testing is a, a morning plasma renin activity or PRA, or you can do a plasma renin concentration, depending on what your lab has available, uh, as well as a plasma aldosterone concentration. And um, another interesting pearl from the episode was Dr. Luther talked about whether or not you know, if you get these labs, whether or not renin is suppressed on a patient's current blood pressure medications can also be a diagnostic clue. And uh, in the case in the episode, we talked about a patient who is on hydrochlorothiazide, telmosartan, and amlodipine, yet this patient had a suppressed renin level, which Dr. Luther indicated would really not be explained by those medications. And it kind of makes mechanistic sense to me because you might expect hydrochlorothiazide to lead to, you know, volume depletion, if anything, in, in which case the renin should go up. It, should, it shouldn't be suppressed. So I thought that was a cool way to use, mm-hmm. um, you know, interpretation of those labs on a patient's current meds. Yeah, we, Paul, we talked a lot about uh, aldosterone and the adrenals this this year in 2023. You know, my take home for it is we should, in primary care, be empowered to test for this, send a, you know, send a early morning renin aldosterone uh, in patients with hypertension or have a low threshold to do so. And 
Um, yeah, you can call for help from your friendly neighborhood endocrinologist or nephrologist or even cardiologist, uh, whatever hypertensive expert you have if you need help interpreting it. But uh, you can really do a lot of good for patients if you figure out if they have this or not. And if they're on the three standard initial meds, calcium channel blocker, diuretic, and an ACE or an ARB, and their blood pressure is not controlled, an MRA is usually a good choice as a fourth medication. It's it's a little bit of a pain for them to test after you start the MRA, but um, you know if you need to get a blood person's blood pressure under control, just you can get them under control, and then you can always work out the testing in the future. Yeah, there's a whole body of literature about how we under test for this. Like mm-hmm. even like there are people that actually advocate for anyone with even sort of essential hypertension, we should be testing for it. Mm-hmm. Um, even in patients with resistant hypertension, the primary care setting it's like 2% of patients are actually yeah. like appropriate patients are screened, like absurdly low. So I'm, we should be, we should be testing earlier and testing more often because I think it's far more prevalent than we give it credit for it. And also because in some cases we can do definitive treatment for it. It's not just medications. Like if there's, if there's, if it's coming from the adrenals and not just, um, not just medical disease, then, you know, it's, we can actually, there are surgical interventions that may appreciably change their quality of life and their morbidity and mortality. Mm-hmm. So it really is worth chasing down. Okay, so let's let's move on to the next one because uh, we'll we'll pick up the pace slightly. So we don't. This isn't a four hour long episode, as Paul was joking earlier. Paul, so uh, what's what's next for you? Yeah, along the line, still more hypertension because we love it. So this is episode three ninety. Um, the resistant hypertension with Dr. Jordy Cohen, who's who's been back with us multiple times. Dr. Cohen is the best. Uh, she's. I was just doing a talk on resistant hypertension and all of my background literature. When I found a great article, like she was the lead author on it, it was almost kind of infuriating after a certain point. So, and I used this episode to crib from liberally. Um, so thanks for that. But she, she taught us that there are a couple of pearls that really stuck with me that I keep coming back to. Um, one of the ones that is kind of neat that I've not used as much, but just think, think it's interesting is this use of citalopram and a possible blood pressure lowering effect. So you would think someone who is anxious and have sort of extra adrenergic overdrive, you might offer like a beta blocker or um, maybe even something like a clonidine, but there's some evidence to support that citalopram may actually help lower those patients' blood pressure. So I, I just think that's a neat sort of synergistic way that uh, probably is going to come up more often than you might expect. And then the one point that I think raised all of our eyebrows and, and I, I was shocked by was this idea of not reaching for the beta blocker um, as like your sort of fourth medication. I think a lot of the times we've talked about sort of reaching for the MRA, which makes sense. But I think oftentimes I've seen folks reach for like a carbidolol when they feel like they're running out of options and sort of skipping over things like clonidine. And I think Dr. Cohen referenced a paper where patients who were prescribed beta blockers as first line therapy in the absence of other indications had worse cardiovascular outcomes. So it's I'm now avoiding those blood pressures a little bit more assiduously unless I have a good reason to actually start them. Um, and she I think even said that she would she would opt for like a clonidine patcher um, before she would reach for a beta blocker and patients or guanfacine. I think, God help I us. think you, I think you asked her, you, you were like, am I getting this correct? Your fourth line agent might be guanfacine over. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I felt like I had to have misheard it, but it's yeah. yeah. But, so but that was, was for the anxious person, right? Like, cause, cause like we just talked about with Rahul's, uh, Pearl a- MRAs for most people yeah. is going to be the fourth agent. But, uh, if it's that really anxious phenotype, they might have that sympathetic driven hypertension and something like a citalopram, clonidine, guanfacine, something like that to try to target the, uh, you know, the anxiety component of it could, could help. Have you guys tried that actually in practice? Like, have you seen, seen how it works? I'm just curious. MRAs for sure. Uh, right. I, I, I definitely have patients on MRAs and, uh, but the citalopram I, or the, yeah, the I have not had the right patient for that okay. since, since learning this, but, um, 
I mean, I would, I, I have would certainly do it. Never seen a guanfacine prescription out in the wild. <laughs> like I know that it yeah. exists, but I, I've I, never actually. I've seen, seen it one. for. I've I, I have uh, some patients with like ADHD, and their psychiatrist mm. has mm-hmm. them on that in addition yeah. to um, a stimulant. But th- that's that's where I've seen it mostly. Okay. Uh, I had not seen it for for this indication. And Paul, you wanted to mention about blood pressure cuff size, right? Because we talked about this on Spooky Cakes, number 414. It seemed to synergize because we also talked with Dr. Cohen about pseudo-resistance. Um, so there's this, you know, you're stacking on the medications and you just can't seem to get it. And one of the most common causes of pseudo-resistance, and there's been studies of this of patients referred to high blood pressure clinics, is just mismeasurement or improper measurement of blood pressure. Um, so they actually looked at this in about, it was something like 20% of patients, if they just measured the blood pressure correctly, they were controlled, which is kind of embarrassing. Um, so there was this cuff, um, was it cuff SD trial? I, I'm embarrassed mm-hmm. not remembering the name, but by Ishigami et al. And that looked at sort of the effect of blood pressure cuff size on blood pressure measurements. And if you have someone who has a larger arm and has a blood pressure cuff size that's too small, so say they require an extra large and they have like a, a small cuff, that can raise their, that can give you a systolic blood pressure that's actually 20 millimeters mercury higher than reality. And that's like the mean. So like you have these really appreciable, significant differences in blood pressure measurement just based on cuff size alone. Um, so just reminding everyone to repeat the blood pressure, do it on bare skin, have their legs supported, their back supported, make sure their bladder's empty, don't talk to them, make sure the cuff size is actually measured correctly. And I and I consistently over and over again will get systolic blood pressures that are 20, 30 millimeters mercury lower than what was initially measured in triage. And we should not be making treatment decisions based on improper blood pressure measurements. So mm-hmm. I just, um, while we're thinking about resistance, don't miss pseudo-resistance, things like medication non-adherence, but especially just inappropriately yeah. measured blood pressures. I, I That article, I believe, said something to the effect of more than half of patients or close ha- close to half the patients do not fit in the regular size cuff that comes with most machines. So you, they, right. most people are going to need a large or even an extra large cuff uh, in, in, in the country. So, so think about that uh, when you're measuring. Okay, next up, number 375, Delirium with Dr. Esther O. This is one of our first episodes in 2023. And the main thing that I wanted to just highlight for people is something that I didn't know is that because they think that the pathogenesis of delirium involves inflammation and neurodegeneration in the brain, they've actually done studies where they like measure some of the sort of same kind of um, this neurofilament light, which is typically found in traumatic brain injury, and that can be elevated in delirium as well. And then there's this decide study where uh, they they followed patients out who had delirium and they saw that their future risk of cognitive decline and dementia was way higher. So the idea is that the longer and the more severe delirium is, the more likely that person is to go on to develop dementia. And that's part of why delirium is like an emergency and you really have to try to figure out why someone has it, which, you know, Rahul, I'm sure you spend a lot of the time in the hospital trying to figure out why someone has delirium. And I don't know if you have a number or, or just what's your gestalt of like how often do you actually find the exact cause of their delirium? Um, I, I don't know that I'm ever uh, able to confidently say that, you know, this was one smoking gun. I will say that for most of my patients and like I'm on service right now, you know, if I am thinking hard and really looking, I can identify two, three, four contributors yeah. to delirium for, you know, basically any hospitalized patient. So if, if you're looking hard and you're thinking carefully, you can identify a lot of intervenable causes mm-hmm. for these patients for sure. Uh, Adam, who's also a hospitalist who helped with this episode, like one of his big questions for her was like, so the patient that is, 
you know, still delirious in the hospital, but they're having hypoactive delirium and they're just not quite back at baseline. Can we ever discharge that person? Because a lot of the times, like you've sort of done your due diligence, you look for any big, bad causes, you kind of try to mitigate all the, all the little factors you think are contributing to it and you still don't find anything. And she said, well, it's very, it can be very nuanced. It can be case by case. And sometimes if they have a really safe and supportive home environment, maybe sending them out and they, they might be more likely to come out of the delirium there because it can last for days, weeks, months. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it can be a really bad condition. So, uh, thought this was a really great episode and a really, uh, a really likable guest. So check that out if you haven't heard it yet. Uh, Nora, what, what do you have next? I have another spooky cake from episode 414. Uh, it's chock full of, of good, good stuff. Uh, and I feel like we kind of have to end the year talking about the acorn trial, uh, which we talked about in episode 414, uh, by Quan et al, uh, just published in JAMA in October. Uh, this trial, uh, looked at Tazo versus cefepime in patients who were hospitalized with suspected infections and uh, found that there was no difference from an acute kidney injury perspective between patients who were randomized to piptazo and patients who were randomized to cefepime. And notably, a majority of the patients in both groups, I think upwards of 80% got vancomycin. So this kind of lends credibility to, uh, to the thought that there is no redu- there is no increased risk of AKI with vinc and piptazo. Um, so I'll pause there because I, I feel like we've been talking about this a little bit uh, the last few weeks and uh, on spooky cakes, but also just on Twitter. So I'm curious whether this is going to change your guys' practice, generally speaking. We got to hear from Rahul about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd- I can. I think this uh, is going to change my practice for sure because the the question that I'm often uh, or the decision I'm often trying to make in these situations is is anti pseudomonal coverage indicated? Yes or no? And uh, you know I, I have sort of genuine equipoise about whether cefepime or piptazo is you know safer from a from a renal standpoint. So so I found this persuasive that uh, it didn't really seem like piptazo either alone or in combo with Vank. For a median of three days, you know, granted mm-hmm. that's not not a huge duration, but at least for what was seen in the trial, there, there didn't seem to be any increased risk over cefepime. Um, and one criticism that uh, was uh, the digest on this was really well done. I mean, they, you know, the author pointed out, um, you know, one problem is that this was an open label trial, so uh, investigators knew what drugs patients were getting, and that could affect you know, detection of um, adverse events, things like delirium, neurotoxicity, if people had a preconceived bias in, in one direction or another. So um, nevertheless, it's kind of the best evidence we have to date. So I mean, yeah, for me, I consider this uh, kind of exciting results. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to not fear the Vank and Piptazo anymore. That it's was Alexander kind of... Chaitoff that wrote yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah. Kudos, Dr. Alex. Alex. That was Chaitoff. really good. Yeah, it was really good. Kudos. Um, yeah, it was also impressive. I think they managed to get... Uh, complete enrollment in like under a year for this trial. It was pretty large. It was a single center trial, but just impressive from a kind of trial running perspective that they managed to get a important question answered, at least in this context. All right, Nora, what other favorite trials you wanted to, to quickly mention? Um, I guess there, there were a couple of interesting HIV uh, trials, uh, 
can't have to mention Reprieve, uh, which looked at pitivastatin in uh, patients with HIV uh, who are low to moderate risk uh, from a cardiovascular disease perspective and found a benefit in that population. Um, so I, I think I think this is this probably should be uh, practice contemplating, uh, you know, that that we should probably be thinking about whether or not to dis whether yeah. or not to start a statin in these even these lower risk patients with HIV. This feels kind of landmarky to me. Yeah. Like I think not just practice changing, but I think this is going to be one that is going to be referenced in the future as as the reason that we have changed our practice entirely. So I, I think yes. it's yeah. an exciting trial. I think that's going to go into guidelines, whatever whatever mm-hmm. guidelines yeah. are out there for HIV. I bet you they'll put it in there as a like they have it in for statins for moderate intensity statin for diabetes. Yep. Yeah. And we, we covered that in the digest episode 418, I think. Yeah. Which would have yeah, been last. Couple of the issues. Yeah. Would have been at the time this is airing, it would have been just, you know, a month ago. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, let's, let's move on. Rahul, you had some updates. This was number 393. These were clinical updates in hospital medicine at SHM. So Rahul, how did your updates hold up? Yeah, so I thought I would take the opportunity to hold myself accountable because so often when you give these update talks, you know, you get to say whatever you you want and then no one kind (laughs) of, you don't have to deal with the results of that, uh, whether or not the things you thought were going to be practice changing really held up or not. (laughs) So medical education, baby. Exactly. (laughs) So I thought I'd, I'd put myself on the chopping block here. Um, so I had the opportunity to, the privilege to review uh, the literature in hospital medicine from the last year with uh, Heather Nye from the Division of Hospital Medicine at the San Francisco VA. Uh, and so we uh, did, we recorded this episode uh, at the SHM uh, National Meeting in Austin in March of this year. Um so what uh, sort of held up uh, from then to now? Uh, well, for one, uh, one of the papers we talked about was the impulse trial. And this was published in Nature Medicine um, in the past year. And the bottom line of this trial was, it was really persuasive to me that starting empagliflozin in patients hospitalized with acute decompensated heart failure improves clinical outcomes that persists out to 90 days, but the symptom improvement starts as early as 15 days after initiation. And patients who got empagliflozin were 36% more likely to have this composite outcome of clinical benefit at day 90. And it seemed to me that this benefit was really driven by a greater improvement in symptoms and a greater diuretic response. So this result, how do I know this held up? Well, um, Former guest uh, on a past episode uh, and friend of the pod, uh, Michelle Kittleson uh, and colleagues authored a uh, uh, expert consensus statement uh, for the American College of Cardiology that was uh, published this year. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. And there's a figure in the consensus statement, figure nine, uh, which really highlights the central role of SGLT2s uh, in patients, uh, particularly with HEFPAF. We've kind of known about the benefits for patients with HEFREF for uh, more than just the past year. But they now recommend initiation of SGLT2s before even loop diuretics in patients with HEFPEF. And uh, if additional diuresis is needed for um, those patients, you can uh, add uh, a loop diuretic and then the other classes of medications. So that one definitely helped out. Matt, I was going to ask you, I, is I think one of the things that I sometimes see is the decision to start an SGLT2 just ends up in limbo. There's a lot of clinical inertia and is the primary care doctor, is the cardiologist, specifically in the outpatient setting. So I think if, if, if it started while the patient's admitted, they're getting sort of their initial workup and they're discharging the SGLT2, like it seems like, oh, thank God, like that decision's already been made and then you don't have to, there's not this sort of 
back and forth as to who's going to start it and should we wait for a chronology? Like they have already mm-hmm. gotten the evidence for medication. So I think from a system standpoint, like this is probably going to improve outcomes in a really meaningful way. Yeah, it, I just wonder because because SGLT2s are supposed to be held for something like two or three days before a surgical procedure. So starting it during the hospitalization, I, I think that came out of concern maybe for, I don't know if it was dehydration or if it was concern for euglycemic DKA while they're in the hospital. Yeah. And But I, I really feel like we're going to get comfortable using those agents in the hospital or continuing them if, if patients are going to be getting them routinely now for heart failure. So I'm curious to see how that's going to pan out. And um, yeah, my my big barrier for SGLT2s right now is a lot of my patients who qualify for them or who have an indication are on Medicare and it, they're still pretty mm-hmm. expensive for patients on Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, but otherwise I have a really low threshold to prescribe, uh, to yeah. prescribe them. Rahul, any other studies you wanted to highlight? Well, uh, you know, uh, so the, on the theme of GDMT for heart failure, it's becoming increasingly clear that getting patients on these medications as soon as possible is better. And I think, you know, I have been guilty of not uh, initiating patients on all the classes, you know, before discharge. And in the past year, we finally have evidence that it it really makes a difference in terms of mortality and rehospitalization. The strong HF trial uh, in the Lancet um, found that uh, getting patients rapidly uptitrated on GDMT uh, led to a 34% reduction in all-cause death and heart failure readmissions at 180 days. So really exciting stuff. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's it's cool that because most people aren't going to have the guts to just rapidly uptitrate all those medications. But if if you know if it's been done in a trial and like a protocolized or safe way, then uh, that probably would make people feel more comfortable doing that. It could become the standard. Let's move on, Paul. You wanted to talk about kratom which i believe you can get at a gas station near you I, uh, literally i can uh yeah there, i mean it's billboards for <laughs> like it's it is not i i could get it if i wanted to and i i won't take too much time on this I, i'm gonna make the same point i made before so kratom is it's an interesting uh substance it initially came from the leaves of a tree indigenous to southeast asia where it had been used for centuries and sensibly as kind of it was treating things like hypertension and cough and fever but also just for aches and pains and if you're kind of tired like it has pharmacologically, it's kind of a mess. Like it stimulates every receptor known to man. So like it's, <laughs> so it's, there's mu receptors. So it's an analgesic and there's some uh, COX-2 pathway inhibitor and there's some alpha agonism. Like it just, it's kind of all over the place, but it had been used safely um, uh, again in Asia. And then of course in the States, we hyper-concentrated and sold it in gas stations and these incredibly potent forms. <laughs> and now we're, we're running into issues with it, but it's, it's a medication. It, it it has psychoactive properties. It has a partial affinity from opioid receptors, which is why it's thought to have analgesic effects. Um, it does not cause the same sorts of respiratory depression that you see with other opioid um, agonists. And it also has, like I said, it has some COX-2 pathway inhibition and alpha agonism, as well as serotonergic and dopaminergic antagonism. So it's all over the place pharmacologically. Why it's important is patients are using it recreationally. They are sometimes patients with opioid use disorder are using it to mitigate withdrawal symptoms. They're self-treating with Kratom to kind of come off of opioids in a way that is less miserable for them. And more importantly, people are using it and then using increasing doses and are finding themselves with withdrawal symptoms from the Kratom itself. And so there are an increasing number of case series about patients who are actually being treated with buprenorphine for, this is not a, a diagnosis code yet, but basically for Kratom use disorder. So they have tolerance, hmm. they have withdrawal symptoms, they it is impacting their function. And as a result, these patients are being treated as if they have opioid use disorder. And I, in my personal practice, 
now that I'm starting to ask patients about it, many of them have heard of it. And many of my colleagues and I certainly had not up until sort of this episode. So it's I, when you're taking your social history, I, I think it's probably worth at least asking about some of these more unusual substances because they have real clinical implications and we're going to have to contend with them in one point or another. We don't, I think, know enough to have a lot of evidence to manage them, but at least knowing about them is a good place to start until we actually build that evidence. And there's only the only way to build the evidence is to have more clinical exposure. So mm-hmm. just think about asking your patients about Kratom. Um, and that's that's really the only plug I'll make about it right now. So it's 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 been around for a while, um, but I, I'm hearing about it more and more and you're going to be hearing about it as well. So just want to raise awareness of it. Yeah. And maybe, you know, it's the holiday season. Maybe put someone in uh, if you if you have a kid, maybe put some in their stocking. Or not their kid, <laughs> your your brother, yeah, or your sister. Um, Just chill them out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Do you eat it? Is it? Did you mention that? Is it? Is I think it it's a, pills, right? It is it's ingested. Pills? That's correct. Oh, okay. It, okay. There's pills. There's powders. There there okay. are different formulations. Um, but yeah, it's it's always ingested. I don't think it's it's used in other formats. Okay. All right. So Paul, the last topic uh, before we get to our reflections is RSV. So we talked about this on number 414, Spooky Cakes. And I I beat up on the uh, the Pfizer study. There were, there's a couple vaccines. So, so Pfizer and GSK both have vaccines that are approved. Brand names, Arexv, that's the GSK one, and Abrisvo is the Pfizer one. Um, they're both FDA approved for adults over 60, both to prevent uh, acute RSV infection and or lower RSV lower respiratory tract infection. Neither of the trials, the phase three trials, uh, were able to target hard endpoints of hospitalization or death, but they did prove that they prevented acute RSV infection and lower respiratory tract infection, um, which they were confirming with like PCR testing. So my critique of especially the uh, Pfizer study was that they didn't have they had a really younger, healthier co- cohort without comorbidities, and they excluded immunocompromised people. The um, GSK study, which was by Poppy, they were both 2023 in New England Journal. The GSK study had a larger proportion of older, sicker patients. I looked at that one before this, and um, they did see less RSV infections. I should mention that both the Pfizer and the GSK study had a really small number. Uh, you know, they had like 25,000 patients in the GSK and almost 40,000 in the Pfizer study, and they still only had like under 100 RSV infections total in both groups. You know, it was a, it was a small numbers that we're talking about absolute. So they're they're giving you this 80% relative risk reduction, but it's you know we're talking about very small numbers here. The absolute numbers are pretty small. So my questions, Paul, are are these vaccines going to work for the older, sicker patients or, or people that are truly immunocompromised, chemotherapy on, you know, meds for rheumatologic disease, chronic steroids? Um, how often do they need to get them? And are they going to work for to prevent hard endpoints like hospitalization and death? The trials are still ongoing because they, they want to see if they work over two different RSV seasons. So, Paul, what is your what is what do you think? Yeah, it's, you had me sold on on poo pooing them earlier. I think um, just because you're a convincing guy, I will say that all the studies look kind of the same. And there's there's whether you're talking about the Janssen or the GSK or the, or the Pfizer, like all the trials showed like this around eighty percent um, reduction. And I I don't know. Like the more I think about, it, the more I, I do think that's 
significant. I, you know, I, I, the hard endpoints thing, I think, is a valid point. But I also think like it starts to feel a little bit like the not having randomized control trials for parachutes. Like if they're not getting the infections, then they're probably less likely to die from the infections. You sure. know what I mean? So if they're having less symptoms. So I, I hear your concern. I think those outcomes will probably come. But I do think that the, the numbers that they have so far are reasonably impressive. RSV is reasonably prevalent. And the safety profiles, which I think is probably the the larger concern, like there there is the neurologic outcomes, I think, I don't think we're statistically worrisome, but there was enough of them that kind of raised your eyebrows. You know what I mean? So I, I do think that that probably warrants watching. But I, I think overall, if you're having a decrease and a significant decrease in symptomatic infection, probably those hard outcomes are going to follow. Like it just doesn't make sense that mm -hmm. they wouldn't. And it would be nice to see the hard data. But I just think it stands to reason that if you're not getting the infection that's symptomatic, then you're less likely to have an infection that's going to land you in the hospital or kill you. Okay, so there, I, it's hard to find how many people over 60 there are. So I'll just say over 65, there's 50 million people in the U.S., $200 a pop, Paul, that's $10 billion a year. This, so this is a huge moneymaker. And there is a risk of like, you know, some of these, like there there was some Guillain-Barre, Miller-Fisher syndrome scene. Mm -hmm. It's rare, but not everyone over 60 looks the same. So, you know, I want to know if it works in my patient with COPD, with chronic heart or lung disease, kidney disease, liver disease, you know, those people, I think it makes sense to get it. But if you're like a 60-year-old with hypertension, and then you get a vaccine for what for you would probably be a cold and you get like Miller-Fisher syndrome or, you know, I, I, that's that's where my calculus is sort of and I'm just it's just a blanket recommendation to give to everybody. They pocket $10 billion a year. Everyone's fat and giggly, Paul. You know, that's my yeah, listen. You'll you'll get no <laughs> argument for me that Big Pharma is evil. And I, I do think from a public health standpoint, again, if you're decreasing symptomatic infection and the people who are not going to die from it, you're probably protecting the people who will. So I, yeah, I, you know, I think in general, that's sort of how vaccines, that's the big, that's the big sell. So it's, well, I will always think Big Pharma is evil. And always, I think it's good to be um, really critical of, of the outcomes. It, it does seem to me from a public health standpoint, if you're preventing symptomatic infection, you're going to still be indirectly preventing the more adverse patients from getting sick. So I, yeah. I do I, I do have hopes for the downstream effects from it, but I, I think your point is well made. It, it is mm -hmm. often a mild infection. It usually doesn't have catastrophic outcomes and pharmacies are, are evil. Rahul? I agree. It's, it is does seem all about the population in which the results are applied. And I'll note that we mentioned, uh, we covered briefly in that Spooky Cakes episode, the concomitantly published Matisse trial uh, of the RSV vaccine in pregnant women. Um, yeah. th that that did show a uh, reduction in medically attended severe uh, respiratory tract infections from RSV in uh, neonates. So, you know, in it all depends on the population, the sort of uh, risk we're talking about. So this definitely been an exciting year for RSV. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess you could say protecting kids and babies, you know, if the adults aren't getting infected, they won't either. So yeah. I'm not smart enough to figure this out, Rahul. I just... Uh, I'm just always, I'm just, I'm going to be the skeptical one on the show from, I'll play that role. So. And I'm it, the stooge. Yeah. <laughs> I do have conversations with people and, you know, some, some of my patients want to get it and some of my patients don't. And I just tell them, you know, I'm still something I'm still monitoring the, the essentially the trials aren't done yet, but uh, mm -hmm. I'd say about half my patients that are eligible are getting it. And, and, you know, when, when they have the conversation and the other half are like, now nah, wait, I'll wait till next year. It's not the one I'm prioritizing. Like, I feel like they're the patients who are interested are the ones who have probably gotten it, whether or not I recommend it or not, like the ones who are sort of all in mm -hmm. for all vaccines. But, you know, the, if I'm having conversations about which vaccines I think are important, I this is not the one I'm going to push for if there are other ones that mm -hmm. I can make a, a stronger case for. 
All right. So that ends this portion of the show. We're now going to move on just, you know, it's the end of the year. Uh, I I always like to, at this time, just, you know, do a quick reflection, say something nice to the audience, maybe to the team. So let's go around the horn here. Nora, would you start us off? Sure. Um, So uh, I am very grateful to have gotten to work with you guys uh, over the last many years um and especially for the the kind of jokes and the the laughs before the show after the show the sarcasm <laughs> throughout the the trial analysis the trial name analysis in particular um and uh i coming off of an afternoon of clinic i'm really grateful to like be able to apply the pearls that i'm learning by working with you guys to patients and and just having that space to to take care of patients and have them trust me and actually take my advice about Kiwis and about uh, improving constipation, you know, all of that. Um, so very grateful for that. And uh, I, I really can't overstate how grateful I am for the chance to work with you three in particular on a regular basis and uh, to learn from our guests, to work with my amazing team of digest writers and to figure out how to disseminate knowledge as clearly and thoughtfully as possible. Uh, yeah. So uh, thanks to you guys for keeping my love of learning alive and creating a wonderful space that I get to learn alongside you guys and, and for doing it all with jokes and a good sense of humor. For the audience that didn't hear the last uh, digest episode, the way Paul rates trial names is it did. Did they correctly ap- apply the yeah. acronym? Which it's everyone, I thought, it's just how cool of a word did they choose? That's yeah. that's what I that's yeah. what I do, Paul. But well, I mean, it's lazy, is what that is. I mean, back when <laughs> back when I was coming up, people said put some thoughts in trial names these days. They're, they're not they're not even trying. Matisse, get out of here with that. Yeah, right. Paul. What was your favorite trial name of the year? I feel like oh, that maybe is is that should be the a new. Most I got to put that question. down for new next category. year, Nora. I they were they've all been categorically bad. Like there's not been one that is really <laughs> Figaro, been, like Fidelio, I actually I kind of ooh. like what's that? Figaro is good. Fidelio. Yeah, yeah, those those I didn't hate as much just because they were at least kind of cute. So yeah, like I'll frail take the, AF. the opera ones. I know. Uh, those are <laughs> my favorites AFs. personally. No. <laughs> they, they should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> Whatever social media manager is letting them get away with that, they should just. It's <laughs> yeah. the best. All right, Rahul. Some of my favorite moments from the show uh, this past year and just always have been listening to Matt and Paul describe real life patient experiences in primary care. And I am reminded that access to excellent primary care is not something to take for granted. And it's really the bedrock of a healthy and well-functioning healthcare system. And especially nowadays when it feels very difficult to do that job well, I just think about how grateful I am to my own PCP and to everyone out there who is involved uh, in providing care to patients. Um, And it is a real privilege to play a small role in making high quality learning easier and more accessible uh, for everybody who is taking care of patients. So thank you to our listeners for all the hard work you do. Um, Thank you for listening to us. Um, and I'll also say I'm so grateful to the three of you and to everybody involved in the show for uh, making critical appraisal of the medical literature um, as much of a part of our educational mission as clinical reasoning. Uh, and I couldn't be more honored uh, to do this work alongside you all. So thank you. Paul? Yeah, I feel like I say the same thing every year, but it's it's true every year. So I don't know what to tell you. But I, I 
this year reflecting more about community and just sort of um, as cornball as that sounds like I just I was just thinking about like ACP coming up and the number of speakers that we personally know thanks to the show, like people that we've had on as episodes, people that have come up with us. Um, and so and almost that's true of almost any conference that you go to and now almost like on Twitter, just the like the, the scope and reach of this show and the people that I have met. And I, I tend towards depressive and I tend towards not liking human beings in general, even though I chose a weird profession for that. I just think about the number of incredible people that we've met, both the, you know, the ones who are on this recording right now, the people, the curbsiders team, the guests that we've had, um, the, the people, the learners and the residents and, and just everyone I've gotten to interact with in this role. Um, it almost makes me optimistic, which is not an easy thing to do. Like, I just think there are so many incredible people in medicine and to have this forum where I can actually engage with them and get to know them and sort of see their work and, and appreciate them as people and as, as educators and as uh, caregivers and healers. Like it's just, it really, it's, it's remarkable. And I'm just, I'm grateful for it every single day, even though I don't think I do a great job of expressing that all the time. So uh, I, again, just reflecting on the chances that the show is going to to sort of meet so many incredible people, both as part of our immediate team and then sort of across the country that are doing sort of the same stuff that we're doing. So um, yeah, I think I'll stop there. So Paul, this has been eight years of, uh, going at February yes. will be eight years of since we've been releasing podcasts, but you know, we've been working on this since September 2015. So it's already been eight years for us that we've been working on this over 420 numbered episodes. And uh, if you look on our, our channel, I mean, we have 450 probably that we've released because some of them are non numbered and uh, just overwhelmingly. Uh, the audience has really been positive, mostly in their comments. I mean, we we get trolled a little bit, Paul, but not nearly as much as I thought I would at the start of all this. Most people are a lot just, of tell Paul to slow down. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of telling Paul to slow to slow down. That is true, but yeah, we we're so grateful that the audience has um, you know stuck with us for all these episodes and has spread it to you know that the the main way the show has stayed around and grown is by word of mouth. We don't we don't do any advertising. I mean we have our social media, but we don't do any other other type of advertising. So it, it's word of mouth. Um this year in 2023, Paul, we we changed our website. We overhauled that so we could showcase all the shows that we do. So there's the Cribsiders is on there with their team. Uh, of course the the curbsiders our shows on there. We have Curbsiders Teach, Addiction Medicine. We have the Digest on there now and the back issues of the Digest are on there as well. And also the miniseries, the Teach released its like third season and Addiction Medicine released its second. The Digest has been, Nora, what are we? We're close to 50 issues of yeah. the Digest now. Yeah, and now we're doing it. monthly episodes uh, of either Hot Cakes or Digest. Nora and Rahul are sort of shifting off each month to, uh, so, because it's so much work to put those together. So we're we're making so much content. And I think all told, we probably have more than 70 people working between all the different shows and projects. And these are all just people remotely, largely working uh, for very little. Uh, we have a little bit of support for them, but these people are largely just doing this on top of their full-time jobs. Um, so uh, thank you to all the fans uh, who have supported us, the patrons on Patreon. Discord has been a lot of fun to get to know some of the fans better on there. And we will hopefully we can keep doing this. Paul gets a little harder each year. I get uh, <laughs> get a little tired, but uh, we are we are trying to find ways to make it sustainable, and we have a great team around us to help us do that. So, Paul, let's get to an outro because this is a long one, but uh, it's been fun. And, and thank you to all all of you on this call for uh, being so great to record with every month. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. 
yummy. There's like three of you. <laughs> Someone step up and give us a yummy. Oh, I did not like saying that out loud. That would help me out. Editor, please isolate that and uh, <laughs> drop into every episode. Uh, oh, like, I literally gagged. I don't know if you heard that on mic. Anyway. Still hungry for more? Join our Patreon and get all of our episodes ad-free, plus... Uh, twice monthly bonus episodes at the patreon.com slash curbsiders you can find our show notes at the curbsiders.com while you're there you can sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox and that includes our outstanding curbsiders digest which recaps the latest practice changing articles guidelines and news and internal notes and we're committed to high value practice changing knowledge and to do that we want your feedback so you can email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com and please subscribe rate and review the show on YouTube Spotify Apple Podcasts it really does help people find the show this episode will not be available for for CME because we're taking a break for this one but uh, most episodes going forward are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org a special thanks to Dr. Nora Toronto and Dr. Rahul Ganatra for helping to write and produce this episode and to our whole Curbsiders team our technical production is done by Podpaste Elizabeth Proto runs our social media Jen Watto manages Patreon and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music and with all that until next time i've been dr matthew frank Wada. i've been dr nora toronto i've been dr rahul ganatra and as always our main dr paul nelson williams thank you and goodbye